Welcome to Season 9 of For a Living. I'm Daniel Lazar. For a Living explores working lives. It also honors the life's work of the late, great oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Terkel. And in my hope to close the social distance, I'm seeking to shape the space to hedge against our daily tsunami of celebrity charades and political pablum by giving voice to good, hardworking people who have no agenda here other than to explore what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in and Happy New Year. To one and to all, I hope that 2023 brings you health and wellness, joy and happiness, and all things fun and funky. Look, it's going to be a funky year. How could it not be? We're living in funky times, so it's surely going to be a funky year ahead. Now, I trust that by now you've more or less recovered from the holidays, right? You're feeling a bit less bloated. Your liver is hopefully healing. You're back in the routine. So much as life these days allows for routine. And I hope that you have a lot to look forward to in 2023. Yo, did you make your New Year's resolutions? Hey, how's, how's that going for you? You know, I'm not sure how I feel about the whole resolution gambit. But back when I built my daily routine around cigarettes, I used to make resolutions every year to quit smoking. That was a, a lifetime ago. I'm telling you, it was a lifetime ago. Ever since which, I've been more or less resolved to not making New Year's resolutions. But... But for whatever reason, this year's different. And I made a New Year's rezo, y'all. Hey, you want to hear it? I'll tell you. I mean, it's just me here sitting alone in my office in the middle of the night with the family asleep talking into this fancy can. So I'll confide. I don't mind. I don't mind one bit. Oh, wait, but wait. Speaking of this fancy can, you know what I should do? I want to thank all of those kind souls who support this podcast on Patreon because thanks to your donations, I was able to buy myself a real professional podcast microphone. The one I was using was just fine by my reckoning. The only problem was that it wasn't for podcasting and it kind of wasn't mine. I'd been borrowing it from a former student and dear pal for two years and look, we're all living on borrowed time, but no need to podcast on a borrowed microphone for more than eight seasons. So what can I say? It was high time I made the investment and uh, big hugs to the patrons for making me sound better, crisper, cleaner. I'm loving this microphone. Don't love the sound of my voice. Love the sound of the microphone. That's for sure. And hey, soon enough, I might be able to get another one of these fancy cans for my guests to use. And if you want to help me in that mission, or if you're resolved in 2023 to pay for some of that content that fools like me are giving away for free, do me a favor, will you? Head over to patreon.com slash for a living. That link, it's in the show notes. You can click on it. Get over there. Support this thing. It's worth it. I'm telling you. 
or don't support it. But if you do, I'll send you a love letter. Total win-win. <laughs> you know, that would be a real sweet New Year's resolution. Writing more love letters to people, like actual letters. Maybe I'll do that. I'm not quite resolved to do that. But it would be a nice New Year's resolution. Oh, snap, my New Year's resolution. I was going to tell you about that. Well, it's kind of love letter adjacent, sort of, kind of. Okay, here's the thing. I've been obsessing lately over marking time, like marking the beginning of the day, the end of the work day, the end of the week. And, and like many of you, I got one of those jobs that doesn't exactly end. The class periods end, but the grading, the planning, the meetings, the emails, and most of all, my, my obsessing over the job, it just doesn't end. And then there's all these projects I'm juggling, right? The three podcasts, the film, the music. I love it all. Love it, love it, love it. The teaching, the projects, the family life. I'm so lucky. But there's just no end to it. Like, I always feel like I'm running out of time, as though time is mine to run out of. And to kind of compound this problem, you know, I'm a secular kind of fella. I don't turn to Mecca and pray five times a day. I don't practice Shabbat. Sunday is simply when the stores are closed. And ever since I quit smoking, now that I got myself thinking about quitting smoking, ever since I quit smoking cigarettes like a thousand years ago, I don't have like a, a practice to mark time. But, but I'm resolved this year to doing so. So my friends, in 2023, I'm committed to practices that mark time. I have a daily morning meeting with myself. I have an end of workday ritual of sorts and a Sabbath practice. And I want to share this Sabbath practice with you. So every Friday in 2023, I'll be publishing a free newsletter to mark the end of my work week. It's called The Saboteur. It's a portmanteau because I love me a good portmanteau. Now, I will be writing about rituals and marking time, but more generally, I'll be writing about what I've been obsessing over that week. Kind of like a weekly reflection to mark the end of the week. And you can sign up for that free newsletter at daniellazar.substack.com. I've linked to it in the show notes to this podcast. Check it out. It could be cool. I don't know. Just getting started. So it's a new year with another new project, and it's a new season for this here podcast. I had the ritual season launch party with friends and listeners yesterday at my neighborhood joint, Hella good time, y'all. Hella good time. There were wings and beers, tacos and cocktails, live music, shenanigans, some general tomfoolery. We had a lot to celebrate. Look, I love this podcast. I learn a lot. My guests are so generous and engaged and vulnerable. It's really important for me to document working lives 
at this funky moment in time. And this season, this season is shaping up to be the best yet. (laughs) I know, I know. I say that every season. And I mean it every season. And this season, I'm grateful to share conversations with a life coach, a Baptist pastor, a luxury watch salesman, a transcendent jazz cat. Uh, Oh, and Angelica Schuyler in the German production of Hamilton. How cool is that? Together, we explore their work. And I hope you'll join me for each and every episode. And we're going to kick off season nine today with a special conversation with Zach Dobek. It's special for a couple of reasons. First, it's special because a beloved and esteemed patron of this podcast, Carl Hauk, emailed me. He suggested I meet this dude, Zach, and he said, you got to talk to this guy on the podcast. Now, secondly, it's special because this dude has a critically important job that generally we don't hear that much about. You see, Zach Dobek is an air traffic controller at O'Hare International Airport in the best city in America, the city of big shoulders, Chicagoland, USA. We talked about the focus his job demands and the toll that focus sometimes takes. We talk about what it feels like to be responsible for so many lives and how that sense of responsibility is one of the factors that makes him so passionate about his job. Oh, and we even listened to him controlling air traffic at O'Hare Airport. It's super cool. You'll see. You'll see. So join me in conversation with Zach Dobek. Zach Dobek, welcome to For a Living. How do you describe what you do? Hey, Dan, thanks for having me. Um, It's really kind of controlled chaos. Uh, There are three different types of of air traffic controllers. The air traffic control system is broken into three segments, whether you're a a terminal tower controller, a terminal radar controller, or an in-route controller. And both the in-route controllers and the terminal radar controllers are essentially sitting in front of a radar, separating airplanes based on what they see on the radar scope. Um, I, myself, working at O'Hare Tower, uh, am, am a terminal tower controller. I'm using primarily what I see out the windows to expedite and safely move what turns out to be, you know, anywhere from two to 3,000 airplanes every single day. Oh, my gosh. And basically get them from point A to point B as, as safely and, and efficiently as I can. And when, when you look at it out, out of the window, it seems like chaos. Um, but inside a, an air traffic controller's mind, there's every, every step and every turn and every direction is, is a thought out plan and, and trying to be executed in a very specific manner. So I'm really curious and, and keen to get into all the specifics, but I hope you don't mind if before we do, you can talk a little bit about how you got on this path, because I have to say, I've never met an air traffic controller. And, and and it's very rare to meet one of us simply because the, at least across the United States, there's only about 13,000 of us that run the entire country. When I was nine years old, my uh, my parents took me to Disney World and my dad took me to a window out by O'Hare, you know, at O'Hare and I got to see all the planes taking off and landing. And I said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a pilot. And I pursued that pretty much from then on went to Kent State University to become a pilot. 
I uh, got my private pilot's license and started on my next couple of courses and realized that the $8,000 uh, a semester on top of my out-of-state tuition was a little rich for my blood. The course that I was in, I wasn't really enjoying, and I started to not enjoy flight the way that I used to. And one of the aspects of flying that I had really come to enjoy was talking with air traffic controllers and understanding what that was about. I had never really understood or heard about what they did prior to my flight training. And I started to kind of look at that, you know, understood what challenges financially were ahead of me as far as becoming a pilot. And there were uh, several job openings for air traffic controllers. They're hiring people off the street. And that's uh, essentially how I got hired is I, I saw the, the opportunity to make some money to do something that I thought would be kind of fun still within the aviation realm and started to pursue it. I, I was offered a job uh, the spring of my junior year of college. I was extremely fortunate enough to be able to finish school. I was able to graduate in, in May of 2009. By February of 2010, I was walking into Oklahoma City, which is where every air traffic controller goes to train. You have to go through anywhere from two to three months of training down in Oklahoma City and uh, there are graded problems and you have to prove that you can do the job and then they send you on to your facility. So when I applied initially, I applied for the Chicagoland area and then in the Chicagoland area, there are a multitude of facilities in the immediate Chicagoland area. There are five towers, one terminal radar control and one in route control center. And I was lucky enough to get selected to go to Midway Tower. And I spent two and a half years at Midway Tower, which is, they, they call Midway the world's busiest square mile. Because <laughs> it, it is one square mile long. And they move a lot of airplanes in and out of that airport. And it was some of the funnest traffic that I've been able to work in my career. Because it, you, get a, you get a big mix at Midway. Um, at O'Hare, you, you're dealing primarily with commercial and a very, very small population of general aviation because of how complex it is. Whereas Midway, a lot more general aviation happens there. You get small single engine prop airplanes all the way up to, you know, 737s and 757s and all of the, the business jets that fly in and out of there. So the, the, the diversity in traffic is a ton of fun at Midway, but it does tend to slow down and has some pretty dead times where uh, at O'Hare, you know, it was kind of the, the, the show, if you will, right? That was where everyone wanted to be was, was at, at O'Hare. And I always wanted to test my metal. Yeah. That was my big thing is I want, I want to prove to myself that I can do O'Hare. I grew up 10 minutes from O'Hare watching the airplanes come in and out. And I said, that's what I want to do. So like I guess I spent two and a half years at, at Midway uh, and then got to O'Hare about this time in 2012 and have just been loving it ever since. Oh, I'm so glad that you love it. And I'm so glad that you got to make it to your home airport. It's my home airport too, I should add. And I'm hoping you might help us by kind of painting a picture of your workplace. Like what do the O'Hare towers look like? There's a couple of them, right? What do they yeah. look like? So that we actually have uh, three towers that we, that we control traffic out of. There's one on the north side, one on the south side, and then one in the center of the airfield. 
the one at the center of the airfield is kind of an iconic one. It almost looks like a big mirrored tower. Basically, if you walk up the stairs, right? So we have, you know, administrative offices on the first couple of floors. And then there's small equipment rooms around the, the, the core of the tower shaft. Uh, and then you get up to the 17th floor. There's a break room up there. There's some lockers. And then you have to take stairs up to the tower cab. Obviously, because of where we are located, we need to be able to see 360 degrees around us at all times. And so we can't have a, a, an elevator shaft go right through the middle of the tower cab. So you, you walk up a couple more flights of stairs and you walk upstairs. And um, we have, I want to say that there's about 13... 13 or 15 radar positions. Uh, not all of them are in use at the same time, uh, but uh, we have different configurations that we can use to, to land and depart aircraft. And based on how the winds are and the demands of the, the traffic, we can open up and close positions and use different radars throughout the tower cab. In the tower cab, we we break traffic down between a local controller, which is what is, um, those are the controllers that are basically saying clear for takeoff, clear to land. They're the ones that are handling aircraft in the sky and, and flying aircraft. And then we have aircraft that are on the ground. Those are being handled by ground controllers. At O'Hare, we typically have uh, two to three ground controls open at any given time, separated by incoming aircraft and outbound aircraft. Beyond that, we have two more positions, one that's fairly unique to O'Hare. There are a couple other airports throughout the country that have it, but we have what's called a ground metering position. And all that position is responsible for is uh, basically they're helping outbound ground. They 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 have every single outbound aircraft uh, in front of them. We have these paper strips. They're about an inch, you know, inch tall by, I don't know, seven or eight inches wide. Uh, all the information we need to know about a flight exists on those strips. And so the ground metering position has a bunch of these strips lying in front of them. And what their responsibility is, is to have aircraft that are ready to taxi from the gate, call them, they ensure their position, they ensure that they have what is called the ATIS, um, which is an automated terminal information system. And it tells all the pilots uh, what the weather is, what the airport's doing, any uh, important closures on the airport, any, uh, any weather phenomena that are in the area. And it allows pilots to be ready for either what runway to expect as they land or as they depart. Um, so the ground metering position is... The one that ensures they have the ATIS, the ATIS is uh, identified by a code. Air traffic controllers use a phonetic alphabet, starting with our alpha for A, all the way through Zulu for Z. We have a, a, a unique word to identify each letter. And so when you when a pilot checks on with uh, metering, they're going to say, uh, hey, this is United 623. We're off of Charlie 28, and we have information Charlie. Right. And so what that says to the ground meter is they've listened to the ATIS. They have all the up-to-date information about the weather, the airport, and everything they need to know. And that ground meter is going to say, you monitor ground control on the ground control frequency. 
generally we have uh, we have seven positions open at a time. Uh, we have three local controllers that are handling, and this is all in the main tower. Um, we have three local controllers, one that is landing aircraft pretty much exclusively, one that is landing and departing aircraft, and then one that is strictly departing aircraft. And then we have two ground controllers, one working inbound aircraft that have landed and are taxiing to the gate. And we have our one outbound controller that is taxiing aircraft from the gate to the runways. And then we have the ground metering position and we have a, what we call clearance delivery flight data. And what that, what that position is responsible for is um, every airplane flies on a specific flight plan. And so the, the clearance delivery position is responsible for verifying those routes, make the, make sure that they are in conjunction with our airspace and that they will properly get aircraft out of our airspace. If there are any kind of uh, ground delay programs, in route spacing programs, aircraft that need to go on a specific route to a specific airport, this position is responsible for making sure that all that happens with their flight plan and that is done and filed correctly. So let's take one step back so we could take maybe two steps forward. Yeah. In short, currently your hours are from when to when? So I work eight hour shifts. The way my schedule works right now is I work a week of afternoon shifts followed by a week of day shifts. Um, so my, my days off are Monday and Tuesday. So this coming week, I will start uh, on Wednesday, and I'm going to work from 3 p.m. until 11 p.m. And then the rest of the week, generally, I'm working from about 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. If I'm not working six days a week, uh, I'll end on Sunday. I'll have Monday and Tuesday off. And then the following week, I'll go back at 6.30 in the morning and work basically 6.30 to 2.30 Wednesday through Sunday. And that kind of flip-flops every week uh, throughout the year. Now, what do you do when you show up at the tower? Uh, all right. So um, we have to park in a in, in kind of the general use parking lot um, uh, where we get to park there for free. And there are kind of two main entrances into the building. There's uh, the the... The main entrance where it's actually, if you walk into Terminal 2, um, you can access the front door. Uh, we have security guards there. Um, uh, for me, I generally go into the back door. It's kind of in the ground floor of the tower cab. Uh, and then go right to the elevator and take that up to the 17th floor. Uh, that's generally where I spend my breaks. Uh, you know, I, I can hang out my coat. We've got refrigerators up there so I can put my lunch away. Uh, I've got some lockers and I keep my headset up there. We have all we clock in and out via a, a computer program. So you go there, and then we can also we also sign into something where any briefings that we have to get, anything that uh, is happening around the airport, any changes around the airport, anything that's going on within the country, we have to acknowledge that we've been briefed on these items. Um, Are there briefings most days? Uh, I would say probably about 50-50 there. Okay. At, at the beginning of every month, we have refresher briefings on certain things. So as we come into the snow season in Chicago, usually you know, in October, November, the first of the month, there there's a couple of briefings reminding us about um, 
de-icing procedures and uh, visibility issues, things like that. Um, okay. So you read your briefings. Uh-huh. Um, so I read my briefings and then uh, go upstairs. Um, and as I get to the top of the stairs, there's a uh, supervisor who is sitting uh, at a computer right by the, the top of the stairs. And he has what we call the break list. And it basically has a list of all of our positions and who is working those positions and then who is available. And so as I sign in, I go right to the available list and I walk upstairs and the supervisor's job is to kind of come up with a plan on how they want to run the shift. And we have to maintain what we call currency and we have to work X amount of hours on each position and total X amount of hours per month. And if we don't do that, then we lose our, our certification and we have to go back and, and basically have a supervisor watch us and recertify us on positions. So I walk upstairs and the supervisor is going to tell me which position to go plug into. By the time you become fully certified, you are certified to work every single position in the tower. Um, so I can, you know, I've been fully certified for uh, eight years and so I'm, you know, I walk upstairs and I can go plug in anything. And can I ask, do you have a station that you kind of hope that you're going to plug into first thing to get the day going? Um, not necessarily. Uh, okay. I have favorite positions. Um, you know, every day is a little bit different for me as far as, you know, wh- where I'm at mentally. There are, there are positions that require a lot more mental sharpness than others and what are those right quick i'm going to get into the weeds here a little bit but we have two primary configurations. yeah we should warn our listeners here that we are inevitably going to be getting into uh, a lot of jargon aren't we and i'm totally ready zach i have to tell you i'm all warmed up for you i had an extra cup of coffee i'm, I'm ready for all the jargon i'm going to process as much of it as i can all right so tell me if you need to be sharp yeah what are you hoping to be sat down at so if, if I'm sharp and I'm ready to go, uh, either outbound ground control or south local if we're on west flow. So so we have two general flows based on our winds, right? Most airports are designed based on the prevailing winds. Um, and so in Chicago, primarily our winds are either out of the east or out of the west. Every now and then we get some northerly or southerly winds, but primarily they're out of the east or the west. So when the, the winds are coming out of the west, the airplanes want the airplanes always want to take off and land into the wind. Um, that allows them per, to perform the best, right? So when we are on west flow, that means the winds are out of the west. And when we are on east flow, that means the winds are coming out of the east, right? And so on west flow, uh, our south local position is responsible for landing one runway and departing another one. And, and those two runways... They don't actually intersect physically, but the the arrival runway overflies the departure runway. And so you do have to keep those aircraft separate. And there are specific rules that we have to follow. And so it's a it's a very much a timing thing. And you have to you have to have the right transmission at the right time. And there is a lot that goes into it and in how to roll those aircraft efficiently. You have to know who to talk to. You have to know how to talk to them. We call them fixes, right? So basically on every flight plan, there is a GPS point um, that they that this aircraft are going to fly to. Um, and we have, um, let's see, 5, 9, 
12, 15 fixes that are all spread out throughout our airspace. We have to know how each fix relates to the other one. And when you're working south local, that position, you really have to understand how all the fixes play together and what the the aircraft are doing on your final. When I train, I teach people to pay attention to trends because an aircraft that is doing 160 knots down the final all the way to the ground is much different than an aircraft that's doing 120 knots all the way down to the ground. So when you have two aircraft that are doing 160 knots and they're separated by three miles, you're really only going to get one departure off of the crossing runway. Whereas if those same two aircraft, the back aircraft is doing 120 knots at three miles, you might be able to get out two aircraft. And so you have to kind of pay attention to that and you have to understand how the aircraft take the runway. It's very intricate. There's a lot that goes into it. When you listen to it, it doesn't sound overly complicated, but the thought process that goes into it uh, is tremendous. Um, I desperately want to get into that thought process, but since you kind of teed me up to do this, you know, Zach, before we recorded today, I, I asked you to record yourself at work in the tower, and uh, you generously delivered, so generously indeed that you offered me something like 40 minutes of audio footage of your job. Yep. And dude, I'm serious. I, I couldn't stop listening, despite the fact that I didn't exactly know <laughs> what I was listening to. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like, like listening to a meeting of financiers at a table across from me at a restaurant, but like the people were speaking Greek or Thai or something. Yeah. Um, but I couldn't stop listening. I was totally into it. And what I want to do here is just play a clip for, for you mm -hmm. and for our audience and just ask you afterwards what we're hearing. Okay. So we're just going to do like 60 or 90 seconds. Cool with you? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Absolutely. Here we go. We're just going to take it from like the, the top of what you sent me. Perfect. Uh, here we go. And uh, Southwest 2159, you're going to see a uh, United Airbus cut in front of you there at uh, the intersection of Echo Echo and Victor. I want you to follow them, please. Follow the United 748. United 748, uh, Foxtrot, Foxtrot, cross 49 right. Hold for the Echo. You come under Tower 121.15. Cross 49 right, Foxtrot, Echo, down 29, sorry, 2115. Wisconsin 3906, ground on a nine center at Foxtrot, Foxtrot, taxi, Alpha, Alpha 6, Romeo, Echo, cross running nine or right. Seven, uh, excuse me, nine, uh, Foxtrot, Foxtrot, Alpha, Alpha 6, Romeo, Echo, cross nine right, Wisconsin 3906. Wisconsin 5292, ground running 10 left at Delta, Delta, you can follow that, uh, 7-3 just left to run on the Gulf and follow the 7-3. United 1101, monitor tower on uh, 132.7. United 1800, monitor tower 132.7. Delta check your transponder on, please. United uh, 636, Southwest is waiting for you. You monitor tower on 132.7. United 20, or sorry, Southwest 2159. Here's your United to follow. You can monitor tower on 132.7. Good day. 132.7, we'll call United. Southwest 4656. So 
there is something deeply meditative and fascinating about the whole thing. I could play that forever. And with your permission, I'm just going to append the entire file that you sent me to this episode. So our listeners, yeah. if they like me want to hear more, uh, they can have that. Yeah. Is that cool with you? Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I, I'll say to that is, is that also, if you go to liveatc.net, I believe, uh, you can listen to air traffic, live air traffic from across the country. Oh, that's going to be like my new favorite radio station. I, <laughs> I, I really can't explain what draws me to it, but I'm totally drawn to it. <laughs> so what are we hearing in that clip? Yep. So in that recording, I'm working outbound on East Flow. Uh, on East Flow, um, we're landing uh, runway 10 right, runway 10 center, and runway 9 left. And we are departing runway Niner Center at Foxtrot Foxtrot. And we're departing runway 10 left at Delta Delta. All the runways get their names from uh, the basic uh, compass headings, right? 360 degrees being north, 90 degrees being east, 180 degrees being south, and 270 degrees being west, right? And then every single variation of that. And so basically we are departing our runways out to the east. And it is my job on outbound to get aircraft from the gate to the departure runway. One of the things that you don't hear in that that is constantly going through my brain is I need to take specific fixes to specific runways based on how they're going to fly. So runway 9 center is north of runway 10 left. And I want to make sure that I'm not taking aircraft that need to turn north to the southern runway and vice versa. I don't want to take aircraft that need to turn south to the north runway. It's also my job to make sure that there are equal number of airplanes at each runway. And there are some fixes, like on East Flow, our eastbound departures can go between both runways. And so based on the amount of aircraft that are coming out that hour, I need to make the decision every time I see some of those airplanes, hey, I need to take him to this runway or I need to take him to that runway. And then once I have that decision made, then I'm going to taxi them via a specific route. So you hear me say taxi Alpha, Alpha 6, Romeo, Echo, cross runway 9 right. So what that is, is basically if, if, I, if I'm telling you to go from my house here in Arlington Heights to O'Hare, I'm going to say, hey, take Palatine Road to 294 South. You're going to get off at 190, and you're going to take that to the terminal, right? Oh, that's all I'm doing is when I say Alpha, Alpha 6, Romeo, those are names of taxiways. And so I'm giving them directions and how I want them to get to the runway. And it is a pilot's responsibility to read back what runway I assign them and generally the way that I told them to taxi. Now, this specific push and, and this, this recording happens to be one of our busiest outbound sessions of the day. We, have, we generally have anywhere from 90 to 120 aircraft that depart in about 45 minutes. Aye. So you hear at the end of that recording, I talked to three or four aircraft without giving them a chance to respond because what I was saying to them, I didn't need a response from. I need them to just listen to me and move on so that I can talk to the 20 other aircraft that are waiting to taxi. Um, this is a position where you do need to move at an expedited rate. 
outbound is the quarterback, not only of O'Hare, but of the country because of how busy O'Hare is and how many airplanes come in and out of our airport. If that position isn't doing their job properly and they're not delivering aircraft in a efficient manner, that slows down the whole country. Yeah. Because if aircraft are slow to leave O'Hare, then they're slow to come back to O'Hare. And it just kind of slows everything down. So when you listen to that recording, there's a lot of words, right? And the words are important, but it's the thought process behind those words that are really demanding. Yeah, I I have to say, it, it kind of sounds fun, but I, I can't convince myself that it's fun. Is your job fun? And if so, like, what's the fun part? I love my job and, and and I love it because I get to have fun because it's a giant puzzle. We get to move airplanes. And when you look out the window and you see a spaghetti bowl of concrete and you see hundreds of airplanes that want to get into this small area, you're basically playing. Oh, it's almost three dimensional chess, if you will. Every air traffic controller is taught to have plans A, B, C, D ready to go, right? And if plan A fails, then you go to plan B. And if plan B fails, you got to go to plan C. There are times where you have to go from plan A to plan D at the snap of a finger. Yeah. And so to have that mental challenge day in and day out to where you're trying to just solve these little problems, these little puzzles, how do I do this? What's the best way to do that? Um, and move aircraft around an incredibly complex airport to the best of my ability and, and continue to push myself. I always say you, you kind of have to dehumanize the job a little bit because if, if you understand the, the gravity of how many lives are under your control at any one time, it's almost paralyzing, Yeah. right? Can you think about an, an average 737 holds 150 people right? You have a couple of those or a couple of the, the, the heavy jets, the big guys that hold 300 people, right? You know, at any given time, you can have 500 to 1,000 people's lives under your control. And so you kind of have to dehumanize that a little bit to um, to be able to just function and, and move the airplanes. You're not dealing with, you know, 500 people, you're dealing with 10 airplanes. And you want to move those airplanes from the gate to the runway or from the runway back to the gate as quickly as possible. And what motivates me to do that is knowing that there are people on those airplanes. And for whatever reason, those people have to fly. It's an important business meeting. It's their first vacation in, you know, 10 years. They're finally able to, you know, afford a vacation. Someone's trying to get home to see a, a dying family member or someone that they haven't seen in 15 years. For whatever reason anybody flies, it's my responsibility to move that aircraft as efficiently and as safely as I can to make sure that when that person leaves the gate or that person gets into, you know, gets onto the runway, they're through my control as quickly as I can do it. Yeah. And that challenge motivates me every single day. I, I love that. I love that you appreciate the fun of it. I love that you see the responsibility of it. And I love the metaphor of the puzzle. Your job seems to to demand almost unparalleled focus and efficiency. 
I'm curious, Zach, how you stay optimally focused and what do you do if you're struggling to focus? So we have a contract with the FAA that we, meaning we, the National Air Traffic Controllers Association, which is the union that represents all air traffic controllers. We have a contract with the FAA and that contract says that we should not normally be on position for more than two hours. And that is because of mental fatigue, depending on what's happening, right? Your brain can only handle so much for so long. And when you go through training, you you can really feel yourself decline even after 45 minutes because of how much brain power you're using. There are other positions where two hours on really isn't that demanding. You know, it was a light two hours. There wasn't really anything going on. And then we're generally given anywhere from a 15 minute break up to, you know, there are times based on how many people are in the building and what needs to be open, you can get as much as of an hour break. And that hour break is, is spent just kind of relaxing, uh, watching TV. Some people choose to close their eyes for a little bit to just kind of reset themselves. Some people just kind of talk and bullshit with each other in, in the break room. Sometimes it, it's tough not to talk shop, right? You get downstairs and you, you kind of, um, break down everything that happened over the last hour. And it's tough not to do that because, because it's such a unique language and unique job. When you go home to your spouse or your partner or your friends or whoever you're trying to, to explain things to, you, you, you have to spend so much time explaining why it's angering <laughs> that you don't really, you, you lose the ability to vent, yeah. right? Yeah. And so when you're at work and, and you don't have to say, well, well, so this is runway 28 right, and this is why we have to do that. Instead of go, I can't believe this asshole just tried to do this. He went out Bravo 1 instead of taking Alpha 15, and he just departed, you know, 2 right instead of going down to 2-2 two, two left. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. No, no, most people in your in your daily life don't know why that's such a problem. I don't know why that's such, such a problem, but I will say screw that guy. <laughs> exactly, right? So there are, you know, on, on those breaks, it's nice to just, you know, download the rest that hour and, and – a lot of times you, you know, you try and learn from it too, right? Hey, that wasn't, that wasn't my best hour. What could I have done better? Right. Um, yeah. if you, if you on break with the guy who was working inbound, right. So outbound ground and inbound ground, they share all the same concrete. And so a lot of people say, Hey, you know, you got to pay attention to who you're working against. In reality, you're working with them. Um, but you have to play with each other because you're both using the same concrete, but you're both busy enough that you're not necessarily talking directly to each other. There's a lot we call kind of nonverbal coordination. You're talking to an airplane, but you moved your body physically over closer to that controller so that they hear what you're doing. And then they issue control instructions to their aircraft based on what they heard. Um, Wait, so you're doing all the stuff I hear on that recording, but you're also communicating with your colleagues in the tower. Absolutely. Yep. Oh, yep. my God. Okay, this seems utterly impossible to me. <laughs> it, it, it's a balancing act. And, and, and it, you know, you have, this is why, you know, at, at O'Hare, it's extremely difficult because of, of the things that are happening behind the mic, right? The things that are happening on the mic are difficult. Right, but everything that's happening behind the mic is is even more so. And um, so, let me ask you a question. 
imagine for me, if you will, uh, a rough day. Mm-hmm. Let's say you got a you know day two of a nasty head cold. You and your wife didn't have the best farewell. Your kid's not doing great for X, Y, or Z reason. Traffic, you know, on I ninety was a disaster because that's just what it is. <laughs> and you you just you're not at your best, Zach. Like, yeah. look, every dog has his day, and so it goes. Let's say you're working, no matter how hard you try, at 60 or 70% mm-hmm. effectiveness and efficiency. Can you, should you, say to your colleagues and or your supervisor, hey, can I get an extra half hour in the break room today? Or I don't know if I feel safe or right doing this. Talk to me about that. So there's any number of ways to address that issue. The The safest way is to say, hey, I don't have it today. I have a multitude of things going on mentally, stuff going on home. I'm not going to come in today. You know, we earn both annual leave and sick leave separately. Um, so we're able to maintain a, a, a balance of sick leave for situations like that where you say, you know what, I, I, I don't have it in me today. I'm sick. I'm not mentally there. I need to stay home. Right. That's the safest way to do it. Real quick. You can do that. No pressure. Everybody understands. Yep. Yep. It's all, it's all in the game. Yep. And everyone, you know, and, and, you know, it's a demanding job and, and with, you know, a lot of us working six days a week, sometimes, you know, you just, Hey, I need a mental health day. And I just, I just want to stay home and, and catch up on stuff at home. And it's no questions asked. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But just so that, you know, I can fly feeling safe, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> knowing yeah. that if Zach's not at his best, he can take an extra break or take an extra day off and come back rip-roaring and ready to go. Yeah. Now, there are times, you know, I, I think of a scenario. I was on my way into work one day, and my little brother called me and told me some, some kind of some bad news um, that really shook me. And... It, it, it didn't really hit me until I, I got upstairs on into the break room before I went up to the tower cab. And I, I just, I, I took a couple of minutes and I said, man, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I can't focus right now. And so I went upstairs at my assigned time and I turned to the supervisor and said, I, I need, you know, a, a few more minutes and I might need you to kind of protect me today. Meaning, Put me on the you know ground metering or clearance delivery that doesn't require as much brain power or one of the runways where you're only saying clear to land. Um, it, the positions that don't require as much brain power, right? You can ask the supervisor to say, "Hey, can you can you kind of stash me away?" And they're usually pretty happy to do that. And, and beats the alternative, right? Right, right, because we already don't have enough controllers to work the positions that we'd want. And so when someone doesn't show up because they're taking their own mental health day, right? Everyone's working a little bit shorter. Your breaks are cut a little bit shorter where you typically get in a 45 minute break. Now you get in a 30 minute break, right? Yeah. Um, and so if you can just hide someone away, it's easier to do that. Right. And then the last thing you can do is just turn to you know, your fellow controller and say, Hey, I'm a little shaky today. Can you just keep an extra eye on me? Yeah. Right. Or turn around and ask for what we call a, a local assist. When you are working the local positions, it's basically someone plugged in right with you 
watching everything that you're doing and there to assist you in any way that you need to. So there are multiple things that you can do to, um, if, if you're not, if you're not on that day, um, to kind of protect yourself, but a lot of controllers, you know, we, we understand the mission and at least for me, when I, when, when I hit that top step and I step into the, the operation, I'm able to kind of tune a lot of other things out. And, and I just, my focus is on the airplanes. I've always enjoyed that about my job is when I'm upstairs, I'm upstairs and, and I'm talking to those airplanes and, and that's my job. But when I go downstairs and when I leave that tower cab, I don't have to deal with it. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to answer emails or take phone calls or anything like that. I, I can just leave it all upstairs and I can just kind of de decompress and take that breath and, and relax until I need to go back upstairs. Right. And then again, once you hit that top step game on. All right. All right. So listen, Zach, focus is definitely one major challenge of your job. I'm sure there are many others. What's the hardest part of your job? The hardest part of the job is when the weather comes in. Um, specifically thunderstorms. Thunderstorms are a ever-changing environment. They, they, they can pop up out of nowhere. They have severe impacts on the safety of aircraft. And um, I was working a couple weeks ago, and there was some weather in the area. And in one transmission, I was talking to one pilot, and in that time what I needed to do with that airplane changed three times. <laughs> you know, I, I needed to have him X amount of miles in trail with other aircraft that were going in the same direction. I needed to stop that direction. And then I needed to change what runway that aircraft departed off of. And I, and this all happened within a matter of about 15 seconds. Right. And so things are constantly changing during a thunderstorm. And, you know, the aircraft can act erratically, right? Um, the ramps get frozen because they have to protect for lightning strikes. So aircraft, aircraft can't move in and out of the ramps as easily. And so during a thunderstorm event, it's very chaotic and it's very difficult to move aircraft around. During a snow event, it's hard in a different manner. Things are much, much slower in that aircraft don't taxi as quickly a lot of times their visibility is poor so you can't see aircraft quite as well you have to think that much further ahead because aircraft take longer to break so in that recording from earlier you heard me say at alpha 15 you're going to follow united right what I'm doing there is I'm, I'm making what we call a traffic call and I'm saying, Hey, Southwest, I want you to follow this aircraft. Right. So they know exactly what we're going to do. Those aircraft aren't going to hit. Now I have to make that call much earlier when the taxiways are covered in snow because I need to give each aircraft an opportunity to slow down and make turns at, at a reasonable time. It's it's thunderstorms and snow that really affect things. Yeah. But it's it, the the weather is hundred percent the the hardest part of the job. I bet I bet it sounds wicked overwhelming. You know, Zach, there's a, a patron of this podcast who 
brought us together today. And that patron, as you know, is the always kind and always compassionate Carl Hauk. And I reached out to Carl, actually, to ask him what he would want to learn about air traffic control work. And he, uh, he shared a couple of questions with me. And here's one of Carl's questions. He hopes you might describe a time when you experienced a, a close call. What happened? So um, there was a time at Midway, you can get a lot of airplanes really close together at, at Midway. And I was actually still in training and I had my supervisor watching me and we were doing an unusual configuration. There's three aircraft that are in play. There is a, a small single engine propeller aircraft departing a parallel runway. There is a Southwest 737 departing the main departure runway. And there is a Learjet that is inbound. They're coming into land. And I told the Learjet to basically make his approach a little longer. I was trying to get the, the 737 out as well as the single engine prop. And the Lear didn't quite do what I expected him to. And he got in significantly closer uh, than I wanted him to. And so I had three aircraft of three different performances <laughs> all pretty much over the field at the same time. And basically you just start prying the airplanes apart as we, as we say, and, and you just, you do what you can within the airspace that you have. Um, and so you have to understand specific aircraft performance, right? This, this, the single engine prop is not going to accelerate very quickly. And so I need to pry him away from the other two aircraft as quickly as I can and turn him away. Then the other two aircraft, right? They're going to perform in a similar manner. And I need to just get them slowly pulling apart. Right. And so I told the, the Learjet to pull off to the left a little bit. And I told the 737 to fly straight and you just slowly work it out. Did it get to a crisis inflection where you, your heart started skipping beats or were you cool as a cucumber? How do you reflect on how you felt in those moments? You know, it, it's one of the, it's a weird thing with controllers. And if you listen to, one of my favorite recordings of all time, uh, the recording of, of, of Sully, right, landing on the Hudson. Yes. I was thinking about that and thinking about you. Yes. If you listen to the controller on the other end, who knows this aircraft is in severe distress, there is very little change in the, the tone of his voice. It is our job to be a calm presence on the other end of the mic for what can turn into a very dramatic scenario. And if we're, if we start freaking out and, and we lose control of our thoughts, right, we're not doing our job and we're not, we're not separating aircraft. Most controllers say that air traffic control is 90% sheer boredom and 10% sheer terror, <laughs> right? Because 90% of it goes routine and, and is nice and easy. Yeah. But that 10% where things go chaotic, you need to be able to step up. And, and instead of talking frantically, you need to be very precise and very meticulous about the words you choose and what to say and how to pull those airplanes apart. Um, All right. 
One just follow-up on that, perhaps on behalf of Carl. In those rare occasions where you experience a close call and you have to work extra hard to rectify the situation in the calmest possible way, and you know, and it could be you're the only one who knows, that this was uncomfortably close, that things could have been catastrophic, and it could have been on you. Mm -hmm. In the days or weeks that ensue after that, does it take some concerted effort on your behalf to grapple with the feelings and the fears you have about what could have been? Absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, when, when something like that happens, uh, most controllers, I would say, immediately go to, what did I do? What could I have done better? Right? What did, did something I do cause those two airplanes to be that close? You know, a lot of people kind of sit and dwell on it and they'll listen to the recording and they'll, they'll watch the, the radar replay and they'll kind of go back and forth. And, and they want to know if if they're to blame or not. Um, do you tend to do that? So I, I can think of one scenario where I had a, a close call. And I knew right off the bat that um, it wasn't my fault. Mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if it was another controller's fault or not, but I knew it wasn't mine. So I quickly moved to the next step is, did I handle it appropriately, right? Could I have done something better? Could I have seen it sooner? Should I have turned this guy more aggressively? Should I have said something differently? Um, and I definitely sat and, and dwelled on that for a little bit. Uh, Did you go back and give the thing a listen and, and try to, as opposed to just replaying it in your head? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you go back, you, you listen to it, you watch the radar replay, and you go, you know, what could I have done? You know, did I do what was right? Um, you know, in the end of the day, the aircraft didn't hit. So, yeah, yeah. you know, th- that was a, a benefit. Now, there are there are pieces of equipment on aircraft that are intended to avoid collisions. They basically kind of create this um, bubble around each aircraft. And if those bubbles touch both aircraft have sirens going off in their cockpits. Okay. So there is several layers of redundancy. Now, not every aircraft has that piece of equipment. Not every aircraft flies with that piece of equipment functioning. And so it still ultimately comes down to me. And I need to make sure that what I'm saying is correct and safe. You go through years of training and... In those, in those years of training, you may not see any of it, right? But you have to hope that the way you were trained prepares you to, in the split second that you need to make a decision, go, I know exactly what to do to keep this aircraft from hitting this other aircraft. And you learn from other people's mistakes, right? You have someone else have two aircraft that are close together. And you go, yeah, I, I like what they did there. They told him to stop his climb or they turn, you know, an immediate right turn or immediate left turn, right? And you learn from those people and, and you hope that when that situation happens to you, you have a toolbox 
full of things that you can just reach into and instantly grab something to say, hey, you need to do this now. Yeah. Right? So in my situation, there was an aircraft that departed a parallel runway to my aircraft. And instead of turning right, they turned left. And my aircraft was supposed to fly straight. And everyone in the tower saw the one guy start to turn left. So I told my guy, hey, stop your climb, turn left immediately, heading 070. And so all I wanted to do was get this airplane away from this air, this other aircraft that we're not 100% sure what he's doing because he wasn't told to turn left. He was told to turn right. So we're not 100% sure what he's going to do. And so we just wanted to get him away from the other airplane, right? And then once the other airplane is kind of done what he's going to do, then we can resume normal flight. But you just hope that when that happens, you have something to, to kind of reach into that bag and grab. Yeah. Cool, man. Thank you so much for sharing that all with me. I know that some of this stuff at the time was stressful. And on some level, you probably carry some of that stress with you. So I'm grateful that you were able to walk me through some of that because it is it's really important and it's desperately interesting. So nothing but gratitude here. Yeah. Um, it is evident to me from some of the things you've said in our conversation hitherto that there is a bona fide community of air traffic controllers that you have the pleasure of working with in the control tower. And I kind of wonder what life is like among you all. Can you talk a little bit about the culture among air traffic controllers, life in the break room, etc.? I always say that that air traffic control is about as blue collar as white collar gets. It's definitely yeah. a white collar job and you know we're protected from the elements and and you kind of get to sit in the cozy air, you know, cab or sit in front of our radar room, but we are hard on each other. Um, we expect <laughs> a lot of ball busting. Yes, we we expect a lot out of uh, ourselves and we expect a lot out of our fellow controllers. When you go through training, it is difficult because we are going to make fun of you and we're going to distract you. And it's your job as a trainee to prove to us that, that you can do it, that you can get through some of these distractions. And then you've got thick skin because, yeah, we, we love to we love to bust chops when we're upstairs. And even, you know, a lot of, you know, being facetious and just, you know, uh, things that everyone does, you know, I've never done that before full well knowing that, that everyone has done that. Um, you know, this, you know, you, you turn a guy left instead of right and everyone hears it, right. Being in the tower, we have what's called tower ear and you have to know everything that's going on because all the airplanes deal with each other. Right. And so everyone's listening to everyone else. So there's no secrets. There's no, getting away with something in the tower cab because everyone hears it. And you do something stupid and the whole tower cab's going, Oh my God, you gotta be kidding me. (laughs) Um, You know, when when people start talking shit to each other, it's, it's a fun game to watch because it's verbal jousting for sure. (laughs) Yeah. And imagine you all go hard in the paint. I hope you know what I'm asking. I, I wonder what percent of, air traffic controllers in the tower at which you work are women. Boy, I, I don't know the number offhand. I would say that we probably have about 30 to 40% women. And what impact does that 
have on like the busting of chops because in the jobs that I've had where there's a lot of chop busting happening, it was like a decidedly 100% male environment. And I reflect on some of the things that were said with kind of shock and horror at my like, you know, 18 or 22 year old self or whatever. Yeah. But you have a much more diverse group of colleagues racially ethnically and otherwise you have 30 40 percent women like sure um how does the diversity which is a tremendous asset for any workplace how does that impact the culture of the job and on the chop busting more particularly you know some some controllers don't give a fuck they just they're they're gonna they're gonna slay whoever and you know whatever gets in their way and and they don't necessarily have the the same kind of uh maybe PC-ness that, that I do at times, but um, most controllers, they're going to show you your personality, especially when, when shit hits the fan and things get kind of stressful, your personality is going to come out and air traffic controllers are very observant. So, you know, as you come through training, right, we're going to see what kind of personality you have. And, and, you know, a lot of the females we work with are very, you know, they're thick skinned, sometimes thicker skinned than some of the, the males, just because they've been dealing with this for most of their career and, and they enjoy it too, right? Most air traffic controllers are the same person with just little differences in personalities, but the way we think and how we solve problems and the things that we enjoy, we're all kind of the same person. Um, it doesn't matter if it's male or female, it's personalities more than anything. And you're going to, you're going to act a certain way around some personalities and you're going to act a certain way around other personalities. Um, yeah. It's a little more complicated than gender, I suppose, isn't it? Um, yeah, but, but I'm still interested in those gender dynamics and, and I appreciate your willingness to comment on it. I will say though, you got me thinking I've had, uh, a firefighter on the podcast. I've had a couple of nurses and uh, EMT, and all of them independently of one another spoke to kind of the gallows humor, you know, the dark side of things, which they all claim. Yes. And I totally understand where it's coming from, is kind of like a necessary vehicle to vent fear and frustration and, and anger sometimes. Is there some is there some darkness in the tower? Yeah, no, I mean it, it's it's very. Um, we understand what we have, right? Like I said earlier, you dehumanize the job in order to push the aircraft the way we do. Yeah, you know everyone knows air traffic controllers is one of the most stressful jobs in the world, and and yeah, it is. But it's also a ton of fun because of. of everyone's under that same weight. It's not like we have people upstairs who are, are, are dealing with, with less than the other guy, right? We all have to deal with these airplanes and we all have to work these positions, right? Steel sharpens steel kind of thing, right? And that, and that when, 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 when you're a little more weak, right? And, and controllers can smell, hey, I know you have more in you. I know that, that, that you can get up further, right? We're going to lay into you a little bit harder. Right. We're going to push you because I know that you can achieve more than what you're doing. And, you know, I always tell my trainees, I hold up a piece of paper and I say, listen, the line that we're going to ask you to walk at this tower is paper thin. And on one side, 
you're you're not confident you're you're shy and bashful you're not assertive on the frequency you're not you know playing around upstairs and on the other side of this piece of paper you're arrogant you're cocky you know people don't want to help you out your personality's not meshing and it's a very tough line to walk but i say you know what you're damn right i'm going to ask you to walk that line because this is o'hare tower you know it's those people who see that line and go I want that, yes. right? And, and and they'll they'll go in and, and they'll take some of the you know the shit that people give them, and, and they're gonna go, I'm gonna get better because of it, right? And, and there are times where you know, oh, this fucking idiot wouldn't have done this, I would have been able to do this, right? And you know, it hurts sometimes, but you know, the the good controls go, you know what? Yeah, I could have done this better. Yeah, you know, and and so when they plug in the next time, they go, yeah, I, I'm gonna do this better, and and and. In this situation, I'm now better because of that little bit of shit that I got two days ago or three days ago. Yes, I, I understand what you're saying. And air traffic controllers have a, a stressful job. They, they have to walk that fine line, as you put it, day after day. Air traffic controllers also have a, a pretty short shelf life. As I understand it, y'all are compensated rather generously, and then, like it or not, you're put out to pasture early. Would you be willing to talk a little bit about what the pay structure is like? So uh, when you get to Oklahoma City and start trading, now it, it, this has all changed in, within the last 12 years since I got in there. It's gone up a little bit. But basically you're making about $40,000, $36,000 a year or so in Oklahoma City. And then as you progress through your training at your facility, you get raised and raised and raised. And based on your facility's level of traffic and complexity, you will eventually get a uh, get into a pay band where you know each facility, each level, right? So each air traffic control facility is separated into levels. I think it's five through twelve based on their level of traffic and complexity, right? So O'Hare, obviously very complex, one of the busiest in the world, we're level 12, right? And the level 12 pay band goes from, I think it's like 140,000 to 190,000 per year. And then obviously as you go down, a level five is, I think, capped out at, at I don't know, maybe 85 or 100,000 uh, a year. So you're somewhere in that pay band, and then uh, most, you know, air traffic controllers going on 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. You know, we're working a lot of holidays. Um, we're working at night. We're working on the weekends. But because of the demands of the job, we are forced to retire at age 56. We are required to keep a medical clearance, and under the age of 40, you have to go every two years and have your health evaluated by a aerospace medical doctor. And there are certain things that are disqualifying. Yeah. And once you turn 40, then you have to go every year uh, until 56 when you can no longer hold a medical. And so we are forced to retire at 56. How do you feel about that, by the way, 56? You know, it, it's it's a really, really nice benefit in that, you know, being a government employee, we still get a pension. And I'm sure that there are some people that said, you know, hell no, I could go on until I'm 80. But 
it's a it's a actually a, a perk of the job you know at at, at 56 I'm, I'm able to retire with full pension and benefits and you know I, I can let someone else take the spotlight you know I can I can take another career if I wanted to but you've put in time especially you know it, it is a hard job and, and unfortunately you know I, I know too many too many controllers who have passed away years after retiring because of, of just the demands of the job. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh seems like one of those things that if you don't really be mindful and take care of yourself, it could, uh, it could eat away at you Yeah, and uh, shorten your life considerably. I'm sorry to hear that. I should say for me, um, you know, I, I'm fortunate that I get to work the schedule that I do and that I work, you know, afternoons one week and days the next week but there are other controllers that i work with and for a long time i worked a schedule where you work two afternoon shifts two morning shifts and then an overnight shift all within one week um and that is a very demanding schedule yeah you can't do that into your 40s and 50s. <laughs> it'll it'll chew you up you know yeah well zach it sounds like you're genuinely enjoying your career and it's cool that you can also look forward to a reasonably early retirement. And I'm so grateful that you shared so much insight about the working life of air traffic controllers with me. I wonder if there's anything that we haven't touched on that you wish more people knew about the work of the air traffic controller. You know, I think one of the biggest misconceptions about, you know, when, when people say, you know, oh, you know, you're an air traffic control, a lot of people think that, you know, we're the ones that are down on the ramp, you know, with the wands waving people in. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that is uh, not true. Um, but the one thing that I, that, that I like to make people understand is that from the moment that you depart your gate when you're on an airplane, you're talking to an air traffic controller. I always give this scenario flying from, say, Chicago to Cleveland. When you depart the gate, you're going to start talking to ground metering, and then you're going to go to an outbound ground control that's in the tower cab. That controller is going to change you to a local controller that's in the same tower cab. He's going to say clear for takeoff, depart you. He's going to say contact Chicago departure, which is a whole other facility. You're going to appear on that controller's radar. He's going to climb you up and separate you from other aircraft. He's going to get you out of his airspace. He's going to say contact either Chicago approach again, or you can say contact Chicago center, right? Chicago center is going to keep you away from aircraft under positive control the entire time, hand you off to several different controllers until you go to Cleveland center, right? Cleveland center is going to do the same thing. And they're going to start stepping you back down uh, until you get closer to Cleveland airport. And then they're going to say contact Cleveland approach. There's another approach controller who's going to get you set up, for the the final approach uh, and then they're going to say contact cleveland tower and cleveland tower is going to clear you to land you're going to taxi off the runway and then the local controller is going to say contact ground and ground's going to move you from the runway all the way back to the gate and so at every moment of your flight you are being watched by an air traffic controller and you are being separated by someone who is very well trained at their job and you know people you've you've heard that the the saying that flying is safer than driving and that 100 percent is because of air traffic controllers and because of the work that we do and how focused we are 
on every single airplane and, and how um, divided each person's work is, right? And everyone knows what the other guy is doing and responsibilities. And um, so I think it's just, it's important for people to understand that, you know, there's only, you know, there's only 12,000 of us across the country right now, but no matter what, you are being watched by an air traffic controller and we are working extremely hard to make sure that, that your flight is, is as safe, number one, and as efficient, number two, as it can be. That's awesome, man. I, I, I really appreciate that. I, I hope you don't mind. I It dawns on me, I have a question about your feelings. <laughs> I, yeah. I guess I really wonder what it feels like when everything is kind of humming along when the weather's good and everything's coordinated and the planes are coming in and going out on schedule and it's just kind of cruising what does that feel like for an air traffic controller one of the ways that i know that i'm one of the luckiest guys in the world is the fact that there have been days where i've i've, been, I've had a crummy day going into work, right? Things, you know, didn't quite work out at home, you know, my Blackhawks, you know, <laughs> lost, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, and, and you're just, you're just kind of pissed off going into work and then that happens. Right. And you, you get the positions, you get the people that you enjoy working with that the pilots are playing along and everything just goes right. And I let, I leave work on cloud nine. What does that feel like though? What does cloud nine feel like? Like you just finished a puzzle, you know, you, you were working on this puzzle and, and things just fit into place. Right. And, and there's, there's the, there's no weight on your shoulders. You just driving home. I'm just, you know, I'm listening to my music. I'm singing along, you know, and, and everything is just more calm and relaxed and enjoyable. Now there's no stress involved. There, there's no thinking about things over and over again and ruminating on certain things you're just kind of living in the moment you're enjoying the things that are around you right i always enjoy you know on a good summer night when things went the way i wanted to and, and i leave work good i'm driving home my windows down i'm enjoying the sunset or, or a nice cool summer breeze blaring my music singing along even though i can't sing yeah. it's very in the moment to me, that's what it feels like, is you're just, you're very present. Love it, brother. And you've been so in the moment and present with me here in this conversation, and that should be enough, but I am a self-described perpetual ingrate. So I have <laughs> two things I want to ask you to do before we leave. The first is I want you to share the story of a professional triumph and a professional failure. Let's begin with the failure so we can wrap up with a note of triumph failure is a tough word for me in that a lot of people think that that failure means that you know you didn't accomplish something right especially with air traffic controllers we 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 expect ourselves to be perfect and that's really not what we're supposed to do we're just supposed to correct our mistakes very very quickly um, my failures i don't necessarily view them as such a negative thing I view them as learning opportunities. And I think that any good air traffic controller views it the same way because 
there's no way to know every scenario. And there are times where you're going to see something for the first time and you may not handle it the way you wanted to. Right. And there are some people who are going to call that a failure. And there are some people who are going to go, you know what, could I have done that better? Yes. And I'm going to the next time. Right. Yeah. I'm with you. All right. There are times where, you know, maybe I didn't work the airplanes the way I wanted to, or in training, I, you know, I would let my trainer down. I can think of one specific scenario where I was debriefing with my trainer and him and I were, were pretty, you know, chummy up in the tower cab. And I talked to an aircraft that was on the wrong side of a runway of an active runway and basically moved him across an active runway, which is a major, major no, no. And I remember my, trainer going you know I, I think we need to stop being so so buddy buddy up there i mean that 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 cannot happen yeah and it really really took me back because i you know i was really much enjoying working with him and, and i thought i was progressing well and you know when you have a mistake like that it really kind of shakes you and then when someone who you are kind of buddy with says hey th- this can't happen that's really hard <laughs> and, and that's, that's really tough. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so that would be one of my, you know, one of my bigger failures. We call it a golden tow bar. Uh, when, when we put two aircraft nose to nose, uh, on the ground and they can't turn right. Air, aircraft can't reverse. I I've, I've unfortunately had yeah. one of those where, you know, I, I told an aircraft to do this and another aircraft at a different frequency was doing something else. No. And they ended up on the same taxiway nose to nose without any ability to move. And it takes, you know, multiple phone calls and um, time to get a, a tug out there. Tugs are the, the pieces of equipment that push aircraft off of the gate. And so you had to get a tug out there and, and it was fairly embarrassing. Um, yeah, um, I feel you, man. But you call it the golden tow bar? Yep, the golden tow bar. <laughs> that's that kind of shit that we give each other, right? Is is you know, it's something that that's really bad and something that no one ever wants to happen, and it almost sounds like an award because we're just assholes like that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Let's use that and pivot towards a story of triumph. I'll give you two stories: one selfish and one not so selfish. My career honestly, for me, is, is a triumph. Certifying at both Chicago Midway and Chicago Hair Tower are uh, some of the greatest things in, in my life. Um, you know, it, it really proved to me that I can I can do what I want to put my mind to. You know, in some of the more difficult traffic situations, I was able to succeed and, and prove to myself that I can make it through difficult training uh, make it through complex situations and and certify and, and those are some big big successes for me um personally for sure man i can celebrate that with you it's pretty awesome like you're <laughs> you're running one of the busiest towers one of the busiest airports one of the most wonderful cities the most wonderful city mm-hmm. in the world man i'm I think you can celebrate that. That's a total triumph. I'm really happy for you, I got to say. But carry on, carry on. I shouldn't interrupt. I, I would say that more importantly than that, though, is taking someone from a brand new controller at O'Hare and producing a certified controller. 
bringing people through the training program, pushing them when they need to be pushed, letting them run when they need a little bit longer of a leash, breaking them down when they needed to be broken down and building them up when they needed to be built up and, and producing a long list of, of certified controllers that I'm really proud to work next to. To me, those are the biggest triumphs. Like I said, you work with a lot of blue collar kind of individuals and I've always loved this job and I've had people my whole career, uh, give it 10 years, you'll fucking hate this job. Yeah. And I've always said, don't you, don't you dare tell me how to do this job. Don't you dare try and bring me down to this level. Yeah. You know, this is an amazing job and I know what I have. And so when I get to impart that mentality on people and get people to enjoy the job the way I do and work the traffic in an effective, safe, efficient manner the way I do, those are the big successes and the big triumphs for me is, is when I see someone, you know, get through the training program, get celebrated for, for succeeding that way. That's really what I enjoy. Yeah, man. I know that you do a lot of training and mentorship and I wish we would have made more time to learn more about that. But I'm so glad that, you know, as someone myself who's devoted his life to teaching and mentoring that you and I share that appreciation for those relationships and that's awesome, man. These are profound successes, triumphs indeed. Before I let you go, I was hoping you might be willing to recommend to our listeners just like something that uh, somehow illustrates your work or maybe something that influences your work. It, it could be anything, a book, a song, a film, probably the movie Airplane, how could that be? <laughs> <laughs> um, anything that influences or illustrates your work god's honest truth and, and kind of cheesy answer is is the golden rule right and that's kind of how i live my life but even how how i treat my coworkers, i treat them with as much respect as i would want to be treated with so that that's kind of how i approach most things and, and definitely it filters into my career i would say another you know i i uh, a guy by the name of simon sinek and i found him a few years back talking about millennials, right? And, and, and the difficulties that millennials have in the workplace. And, and I remember watching this video, it was like a 15 minute video and I was just hanging on every single word of his because he, he was tough on millennials and, and didn't let them get away with things. But he also said like, Hey, there are reasons why we, me being a millennial, act the way we do and right you know you have you have to be responsible for yourself but you have to understand that there are some things that were done to you that weren't in your control right and so the way he speaks and, and he talks you know and and i just follow these these short little clips on social media and stuff and, and he's got a couple of books i draw a lot of parallels into the air traffic world and and how to be a better trainer how to be a better coworker. Things like that where, hey, you know what? You, you need to be accountable for your own actions, but you, you also need to give yourself a little bit of grace. And I think that's a really effective way to be a, a coworker, uh, a controller, and just a general overall person. Right on, man. Well, you seize the opportunity to remind our dear listeners and me of the importance of the golden rule. It's, it's golden for a reason. Mm -hmm. And we will link to Simon Sinek in the show notes of this here podcast. One thing that our listeners might not know about this here podcast is that we are recording on your sort of air sats Thanksgiving. You 
because of the hours that you keep at your job, weren't able to celebrate Thanksgiving with your family on the regular day, the Thursday of Thanksgiving. And uh, I imagine that once you get off the horn with me, you'll be based in turkeys and getting everything ready to have your family together, having not the pleasure and the privilege of doing Thanksgiving on the actual day of Thanksgiving. And with that in mind, I got to say thank you, thank you, and thank you. Thank you for being so engaged and earnest and open and informative with me in this conversation. I learned a ton, and I'm really grateful for that. And, and, and thank you for taking your job with the, the seriousness and the earnestness and the pride and the passion with which you take it. You know, before the pandemic and hopefully once again, I'm, a, I'm kind of a frequent flyer kind of guy. And I can do that with confidence. I could take my family on a vacation knowing that there's folks like you behind the controls making it safe and efficient and reliable. And, and I'm so grateful for that. I, I truly am. So on this here, not quite Thanksgiving, I find myself thankful for you. Zach Dobek, thanks for being on For a Living. Heck yeah, man. <laughs> All right, my friends, there you have it. My conversation with Zach Dobek. And now season nine is officially in the air so follow this show wherever you get podcasts maybe leave a review and if you dig what you hear please tell a friend or two and if this podcast means something to you and you have the means to give a few please head over to patreon.com slash for a living and see what you can get for supporting this independent creation and like I said at the head of the episode, you're cordially invited to subscribe to my free weekly newsletter at daniellazar.substack.com. It's in the show notes. I'll be reflecting on my week as a ritualistic practice. I'm hoping some ritual will help to bring me some peace of mind. It's so hard, man. It's so hard. But I do hope that 2023 brings you some peace of mind. Maybe we could pursue that path together. <laughs> and if not, uh, there's always podcasting. This brings me some peace of mind. Slow, deliberate, earnest conversation. Real listening. Does a lot for me. I hope it does something for you. And I hope you'll tune in in two weeks' time. Until then, please take care. Be well. Happy New Year, friends. 